We're back. We're back. Welcome to the distraction. I'm Drew. That's Roth. How you doing, Roth? I'm good, man. What's happening? You're back in New York after spending eight months in Maine. Aren't you? Are you? Uh, is it weird to see buildings and pedestrians and things of that nature? Well, it seems like everybody's been putting on airs, building tall buildings for no real reason. <laughs> I myself don't really care for it. <laughs> That's my normal speaking voice now. I was at the Jersey Shore last week, not in uh, in Maine, and that oh, was oh, um, hey, you in Jersey? Hey. <laughs> it was a really powerful experience there. Uh, the town that I was in was they really backed the blue, Drew. They wanted everyone to know. People would raise Blue Lives Matter flags on the beach where they set up with their family, just so that you knew that the whole time that they were at the beach hanging out, they were also thinking about cops. Did they have like a Wonder Boom pill too and they were blasting Toby Keith at max volume too? Yeah, there was a lot of, well, it was like the sort of like new country where all the songs are sort of like, I'm driving drunk, but it's not that bad because I live in a rural community. And like, just like, but like real like party shit that like, uh, I don't know. It also Jason seemed like it was trying too hard type. to me. Like if you have a Philadelphia accent, you don't need to listen to like, Morgan Mason, or whatever the country artists of the moment are named. <laughs> that is true. Also, I, but I'm glad that you're giving me some New Jersey Shore stereotypes because I still, I'm dated. You know, I think of Jersey Shore, I think Jim Tan laundry and all that stuff. And there's still yeah. plenty of, you know, gel nail trash and shit on the Jersey Shore. But I want a little bit of evolution in how yeah. I absolutely unfairly treat these people or actually it's actually well, quite you're fair. not wrong it's just like the way that if you you're like oh well i think of all uh, red wine as having these attributes but there's terroir to it man this was the yes. philly shore it's different than the north jersey shore yes i would like to be consistently accurate in how i depict the horribleness of denizens of manasquan that's what the, one thing, the one thing about this town that i want to mention before we and i can segue into our guest uh, for this uh, is that there were no trees anywhere in the town. So it was hot as fuck the whole time. What? The houses were on these little lots, and they had been built up high, I think in part because of hurricane stuff, because it was on a barrier island. So presumably the water meets in the middle of it, you know, every three months, no matter what. But I don't understand exactly how that means no trees, but it was like the entire area was in direct sunlight. Oh! So it was, it was the closest thing that I can imagine. Like, I mean, whatever. Obviously, there's a whole cultural mishmash there because you got, there's a Gabagool area or sort of, you know, element to it. And then there's the, you know, sort of pop country music and the Blue Lives Matter element. But then also, uh, it kind of, it's what I imagine like a gated community in Arizona would feel like. Now, we did not have Patrick Wyman onto the podcast today to discuss what living in Arizona is like. Actually, we but, did. But. Yeah. Uh, Pat, how wrong am I? Also, hi. Welcome. Okay. Well, hi. Thank you very much for having me. Um, so, okay. So I, I have moved, I've now lived in Arizona for a year. I have a lot of thoughts on the types of guy that live here. I, I'm <laughs> constantly discovering new types of guy. I found Ooh. a new type of guy the other day that was very exciting. It was about a 50-year-old. She's about 50, real leathery face, nice. um, vaping like crazy in a Mazda Miata with the top up. <laughs> As one um, must. And, yeah, and you could tell she was just thinking about her useless son that she had with her first husband and how he's never going to amount to shit. And, you know, I just hope that I just hope that he can stay out of prison for another six months <laughs> because then he's going to start his course at the ITT tech. Like this is you could see all of these thoughts going through her head as she's puffing away on this vape. And I was excited because it's not that often that you get to see a new type of guy in all that glory, part, yeah. like just sitting next to you on a six lane surface street. So uh, I get excited uh, just to see a Miata. I don't even know. Like the idea of that there's a whole weird vape intensive inner life happening in it is delightful. I mean, uh, it's, it, was, it was really a stunning experience. <laughs> this is where I note that my father owns a Miata, but you should not feel bad about that because he bought it like in 1992. So actually, mm -hmm. uh, like... No, Miata's rule, dude. No one's yeah. judging a Miata. So, think. no, no, no. And, and I, he used to, and he, I think for the first 20 years he owned it, he called it a Mazda and we had to correct him. And he never, <laughs> ever took the correction. Anyway, our <laughs> guest is Patrick Wyman. <laughs> World's beefiest historian and the author of The Verge, Re Reformation, Renaissance, and 40 Years That Shook the World. Those 40 years are 1490 to 1530. And if you want to pick a difficult subject matter to uh, portray accurately and vividly and entertainingly, you'd be hard-pressed to pick one uh, more difficult than 1490 to 1530. Patrick, I want to talk to you about the book, and so does Roth, but I yeah. want to talk more about Arizona guys first. What other Arizona people... Have you encountered, you know, out and about the, the desert lizards 
Okay, so this is, I, I feel like this one is probably closer to the the outside stereotype of Arizonans. So this is a extremely tanned um, late thirties fail son who drives a very large truck uh, and yes. wears a hat with the flat brim. Um, he's got a he's got a brightly colored polo shirt, probably purple. I feel either purple or pink. Um, and he's uh, like a lot of stubble going on, but you can't tell if that's just because he's been hung over for three days or, uh, because he, or because he's cultivating the look. Um, he's definitely cheating on his wife, um, whom he married at 25. Like, yes. This is, and you know, this guy, he works for his father's or his father's or uncle's real estate company. It's not clear which, um, and yeah, this is, this is a distinct type of guy who's out there. You can see him gathered around the end of that truck. Definitely not doing work, um, of any meaningful kind. Uh, but yeah, this is, this, this is a like distinct an orange type. county energy to me. Am I picking up some? It's, some elements there, some it's, commonalities. It's very Orange County, um, but this guy went to Arizona State as his first choice. Nice. Oh, excellent. <laughs> there are there are That's those couples issue. in uh, in Arizona and in and in SoCal where, like, it's it's clear that they have these marriages that are absolutely fucking fantastic for like four months, right? And also, <laughs> like. Uh, uh, I had another joke and I forgot what the fucking joke. Was. No, it's all right. I think the thing with with Arizona stuff, I'm gonna pick it up and just keep on moving. That uh, that I'm not prepared for is that all the houses that I mean, like that this guy would live in a house that it's like the house where um where Cliff Kingsbury ran the the Cardinals draft. You know, like it's got like one of those things, like a bunch of black rocks that has fire coming out of it somehow, and then there's also like an infinity pool, but like you can't go in it. Like it's just that's for just for a look upon sort of scenario. That's it. That's like, what I was gonna say. Like they have they have shitloads of money, and there's absolutely no indication of how or why they would possibly ever be able to obtain such money. This is yes. the American story right now. It's like the whole mystery of like all these people that just fly from state to state to do anti-vax protests. And I'm like, well, the, you have to pay money for those airline tickets, right? Like, what are you, are, are you taking that much time off from your job? Do you even have a job? Yeah, there's, okay, so there's a guy who lives like a street up from me and he lives in um, what I can only describe as a tasteless fortress Nice. And he has blue light. He has uh, blue lives matter license plates, which they sell in Arizona. They, yes. the, they have, they have thin blue Wait, like line. A state plate. You can get yeah, like an you alternate can, you thing. You can get like an Arizona state license plate that has the thin blue line on it. So not, so, so not the frame, but the plate itself. The plate itself. Yes. Yeah. So a commemorative and, and plate for blue lives yeah. matter. And it says, and it says like protecting public safety. I'm like, you drive an Audi. How are you protecting public safety? This is, <laughs> this is not clear to me. Uh, but so this guy lives there and he drives like a hundred thousand dollar car but he's kind of always home in the middle of the day like shooting hoops and uh, and like but he's he's always shooting hoops again in the brightly colored polo shirt and i'm like oh, wow. what are you like what is the deal here his wife looks extremely unhappy his children are very bad at basketball that's all i know about them uh but like his uh, but and i'm like what is your like what is your deal guy i i want to ask him but i don't want to talk to him so this is a conundrum. I'm I'm forced to fantasize. Yeah, like basically, like if you assume that it has something to do with cryptocurrency, which doesn't seem mm -hmm. like an unfair assumption given oh, the amount of time that he spends outside, not. and then like you already have your answer. Like if you ask, then you fucked up. That's I uh, I was at an audition <laughs> once with a uh, with a bro who had like uh, like the frosted tips, and he was from Arizona. He's like, can't wait to get back to AZ, and I didn't believe. That anyone in Arizona actually called it AZ. Like I think he they just do. did to impress like, you mean people. The guy from the the Nas record. <laughs> I don't <laughs> know. I listen to his single again. No, I mean this is a white guy. I I just right. <laughs> refuse to believe <laughs> that that there was anyone who could credibly call Arizona AZ and not just be laughed right out of the room. But Patrick. <laughs> You live in Arizona. Am I wrong? No, people actually. There are people actually call it AZ. Oh, so the God. the kind of um, charming thing about Arizona, this is both a positive and a negative, is that it's it's provincial. It's not like so uh, like like New York is a global city. Los Angeles is a global city. Even yes. like Austin, Texas, is a global city at this point, right? Seattle, Portland, they're global cities. They just happen to be in the spot that they're at. Um, like Phoenix is a regional city. It is like a, its job is to be a center for Arizona. And so like everybody here went to Arizona or Arizona State. 
Like they have the license, they have Arizona University of Arizona and Arizona State license plates. Like they're like they work in businesses that have everything to do with Arizona. So like they they work in real estate or they work in like law firms that serve the local community. Like it's it's really a, it's like a provincial city of of like five million people, which is, which sounds weird, but it it it, uh, it it explains a lot of the very peculiar cultural characteristics that exist here. There's one extra cultural tension that is sort of unspoken here, but which I feel compelled uh, to mention is that uh, Patrick Wyman is, is from a different Pac-12 uh, sort of folk way. So this is like, there's an additional tension there about like, I mean, it's different. You're, you know, you're a large fella and no one's going to mess with you or anything like that. Is, uh, is living your USC truth difficult for you there? Has this been like, <laughs> like a harder thing in terms of like watching games? I guess obviously no one's been watching games anywhere in public the last year. But So um, I think it would be weird if I were as into USC football as I was a decade ago. Mm-hmm. So I've de- I loved USC football through my undergrad and for the first few years of grad school. And then as I was in my like the fourth year of my PhD, also at USC, I was like, I feel like I've had enough. I feel yeah. like I've like, and especially because I went to USC during the Pete Carroll years and then uh, Pete Carroll immediately became the head coach of the Seahawks who were my NFL team. And so I've just gotten a shitload of Pete Carroll over the last two decades. That is a <laughs> and, lot of Pete. That's a yeah, lot of gum. It's, it's, and yeah, it, there's, <laughs> I cannot tell you how much gum I've seen chewed by that man <laughs> um, or how many, or how many Pete Carroll nine eleven jokes I've heard also like variations on, on the same. So it, it kind of, it kind of destroyed my love of USC football. Though Lane Kiffin, the day the sanctions came through, uh, bummed a cigarette from me. That's the kind of day Lane Kiffin was having. Hell yeah. That was, I was well, he on just, like, campus. rolled up on you was like, Hey partner. He was, I, I was walking, smoking a cigarette as I was going from the gym to the history department, um, which, which was extremely on brand for me yeah, in like say, 2010 or 2011. Pat Wyman lifestyle uh, posting right here. Yeah, uh, I was just, and, and Lane Kiffin is standing out there. He's looking real haggard outside the, like outside the football building. And he's like, man, can I get one of those cigarettes? I'm like, you can, Lane. I understand. I get <laughs> nice. it. I, that's, nice. Uh, that's a great story. <laughs> like, it's, it's, not only do I know what you're going through, everyone that follows football in the United States knows exactly yeah. what you're going through at this moment. This that's, is, such a, uh, that's such a Lane Kiffin thing where, like, once a year or once every other year, he does something cool, and you're like, all right, Lane's all right. And the rest of the time, he's a total piece of shit. But, yeah. like, like, but then he's like, if you ever asked me for a cigarette when we was looking all just fucked up and, like, drawn, I'd be, I would... I give him a cigarette if I had one. No doubt yeah. about it. That's the that's that's the Lane Kiffin experience. Is if he were a total piece of shit all the time, you could just write him off as Monty Kiffin's fail son. But he just but he has those moments. Like and and it's it's a sad sad thing. There's also if we wanted to go deeper down this rabbit hole, uh, Jim Mora made a throat slashing gesture at me once. So uh, hey. <laughs> just cause like they just see you right? and. Did you okay. see you and did it, or did you do something okay. to prompt it? I did something to provoke it. I was I was <laughs> real I was real drunk at a Seahawks game the year the sole year that Jim Mora was the Seahawks head coach, and he'd been talking all this shit about how they needed to get tougher, and they were playing the Bucks in Seattle in December. Again, I was hammered, and I, as the, the Seahawks were getting blown out, Josh Freeman was the Bucks quarterback, which Damn. tells you a lot about wow. this how is, that's bad so the handy. Seahawks that's were. like perfectly carbon dates this to like three grim months of two thousand nine or whatever. <laughs> was, I, I think it was tw- it was two thousand nine or twenty ten, and and, right. and I went down next to the field and I started heckling Mora as I did when I was in my mid twenties. And he turns, he somehow heard me because the stadium was fucking quiet. Everybody had left. He turns around and just goes. <laughs> Unbelievable. Uh, that was, that was a real, uh, just, just pure throat slashing gesture from Jim Moore. That's one of my proudest sports memories. That's something that as somebody who I have not done a ton of, of heckling at games, all that I did as a, as a younger, like as a kid, basically like it feels good in its moment until like, you know, that someone heard you and then you're like, ah, oh, man. Like, I just ru- I had that with, with Brad Lowhouse at a Nets game when I was a child. Look at and you. I was yelling at him, and I was like, Lowhouse, you're terrible. And it was like a Nets game when I was a kid. So there was like 35 people there. Like, it wasn't hard to identify which butthead was yelling that. And he, like, looked over at me, and we didn't exactly make eye contact, but he was, like, looking in the direction of that. And it was all I could do not to be like, I mean, for, like, relative to NBA guys, like, obviously, like, you're the. <laughs> it just felt awful about it. 
Oh, I see. You weren't drunk enough. If you get drunker... <laughs> that was 13. Yeah. You'd, no like, regrets. Turn the clock forward a few years, and I would have really committed to the bit. Actually, I'm Patrick... Like, hey, I, your hair looks dumb. Patrick, I, I should ask you about USC, because uh, we're at the cusp of the real beginning of, of the college football season. Like, there mm-hmm. were, like, six shitty games last weekend, but nobody gives a fuck about that. Doesn't like, count. actual, like, ranked teams are going to start playing this weekend. Are you still cheering for USC? It, which, by the way, there's no school... Uh, more better position to uh, benefit from the NI, the new NIL rules than USC. But Clay Helton is still the goddamn coach. So, how do you feel about that? And are you do you do you care? So you have put your finger on the pulse of the problem, uh, which is that Clay Helton fucking sucks. Right. Um, he's a he he's just like it's amazing that when you have a school that's willing to shell out five million dollars a year for a head coach that you settle on Clay Helton. Like, yeah. Your, like I don't. It's it defies description. Um. It, it, and I so I've got like it's not like I would be enthusiastic about USC football if all of a the sudden they hired a head coach that I liked and you know I I like I feel weird at this point about paying really close attention to to eighteen year olds. Um, yeah. On a field, it's, it feels slightly, it feels slightly odd to me. Uh, but um, the, but I would watch games if it weren't Clay Helton. At this point, I'm staging like a football hunger strike until he gets out. I'm doing, I'm also doing the same with the Mariners who haven't made the playoffs since, since the year of September 11th. So um, that's, I'm, I'm doing the same when they fire Clay Helton. I will continue watching again when the Mariners make the playoffs. I will continue watching again, but, but until that point I'm out, they've lost yeah. me. Yeah, but the when Mariners they fire, are just five or six trades away. That's right. And, but <laughs> that's, the, when they fire Helton, they're just going to hire another pud. Like USC in Texas, mm-hmm. whenever they fire somebody, it's like, oh, well, they're going to get Urban Meyer. And then they hire like the college football equivalent of Mike Richards. So it's like <laughs> it, it happens again and again. And I don't understand why at all. Do you? Um, okay, so here, here's my thought. Um, and I'm, I want to bounce this off you guys because I too have been have been puzzled by this for the better part of the last two decades. Um, I think it's be, I think it has to do with the character of the boosters who who have an inordinate amount of say in the hiring decisions at that level. That like we have to think of them as big dumb drunk real estate guys who are real concerned with with chasing tail at the country club. Yes. Like, and so if that's your if that's your frame of reference then you're probably not going to make great decisions about who you want to hire to, to, to hire, to run your, your college football team. Like you're going to like, you're going to have some mixed feelings. You're going to be thinking, but is it really worth paying $5 million for this? Is it, you know, so like you've got the dumb guy price logic going into it combined with, um, uh, uh, being really worried about your Viagra prescription and, uh, and how much, and how much you're going to have to drink tonight. Yeah, this like, is like where I think the Buddy Garrity character from Friday yes. Night Lights was like a really instructive one to have on TV because mm-hmm. most people will never meet an actual athletic booster. You know, like if you see them at a at a game, I remember I used to go to those like uh like the Jimmy V Classic, like those like the college basketball ones that they'd have at Madison Square Garden, and it would be like there was a safari element to it too because it would be like all the the big teams would be there, these big programs, and you'd be like, all right, well, who are the money guys that are like putting like that are paying basically like whatever Rick Pitino's salary at Louisville or something. And it would like, I didn't know what like the rich athletic booster types of Louisville looked like. And then like, you'd see them and be like, Oh, right. Cause they were like maroon and they all kind of looked like, like things that like, like if Papa John had like a quado coming out of his chest, like in, <laughs> in a total recall sort of scenario, like just real like wizened car dealer types. But you're like, yeah, all right. Like this is the sort of person that would not just like fall for Rick Pitino's shtick, but would like live and die for Rick Pitino's honor, you know, mm-hmm. that would like put or would spend millions of their own dollars to fire him the moment they turned on him. Yeah. They, so like, I, I think that, I think that's exactly right. When you think of Papa John as being the, like, the good-looking version of that guy. <laughs> that's, like, uh, that's the Hollywood but, representation. Yeah. Oh God, yeah, that's so. He's, that's he's so. The be- scu- he's the sculpted, um, <laughs> perfected representation of the type. Like so they, bleak. It, the the only way I can think of to describe this type of guy is that they bulge in awkward ways. Yeah, like that's and and I think that's why why Trump, frankly, was such a favorite of this type is because he bulged more bulgy than the rest of them. Yeah. 
Like, he was authentic that, in that way. Yeah, the, the, it's it was like uh, like cookie dough covered in saran wrap. Yep. <laughs> well, that's the thing about Trump. He was never pretend stupid. He was actually stupid in yeah. a way that like m- most of every other politician really can't be. And so then everyone who voted for him was like, "That's my kind. Of, that's exactly yeah. the kind of stupid that like, I he am." Like he still so. pandered mm-hmm. and, and like inauthentically. Like we need to get in front of crowds and be like, "You guys love your Bibles, don't you? You fucking hogs." But he but did. Just so be like, "Yeah, we love you. Thanks for noticing." And he did. So and then, he did so the, badly though that that was sort of the charm of it, right? Like, yeah. oh, he don't believe a fucking word he's saying. I've tried to bullshit like this and have it failed, and it's working for him. That's great. Yep. The rich guy stuff is like he was the one that I have come back to lately. Is there's. I think it was after there'd been a like a mass shooting or some terrible thing where like the president was supposed to participate in a ritual of mourning and Trump had clearly been playing golf all day showed up at a mega church in his golf outfit like he's wearing golf shoes on stage. It's the one picture where he doesn't have his bangs cuz his hair was up under his hat so it's like pushed back and I remember like you know whatever they did like some pr- they you know prayed over him and laid hands and all that stuff and he's kind of sitting there being like terrific like, wow, that's really great. Thanks for touching me. Like, sort of, but it was, like, that, the brass that it takes to be like, yeah, I'll go to the church after I'm done with my fucking 18 holes, and, like, maybe I'm going to have a Diet Coke after. But, like, <laughs> that's when I'm going to participate in the mass shooting prayer that's happening right now. Like, that's, that, to me, was like, that's what these guys are like. Yeah, that's, that's peak, uh, that's peak um, local gentry energy. Yeah, right. Like, will not inconvenience themselves for any mass death event, but, like, they will consent to be flattered at some point, like, of their choosing. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, the, 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 the single, it, David, you may, you may disagree with me on this, but I feel like the single most revealing uh, picture of the Trump era, and that speaks to bring this back around to, to our types of guy here, uh, was the picture of him with all of the half-soused um, polo shirt guys at a country club, mm-hmm. where he's just like, he's giving the two thumbs up, and the rest yep. of them are all red-faced and grinning and just looking real greasy with it. Yes, um, yeah. That's, I feel like that, that is like the skeleton key that unlocks this entire era of American right. history is it's just him that meeting picture. his base. You got exactly. to have, um, have the senior font MAGA hat too. Like, yep. it's yeah. like <laughs> right. the, just the letters are as big as humanly possible that a, a fucking baby would be able <laughs> right, to read The it. large print type. Like yeah. it should be like the only other words that ever appear in type that large are James Patterson. <laughs> <laughs> so you can see it from halfway across yeah, right. the, 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 the Phoenix airport Sky Harbor, Harbor Airport on your way out. <laughs> Let's take a break and come back and talk history as we intended to. And now we're back well, with uh, historian Patrick Wyman and I want to talk to you briefly uh, about your book, Patrick, The Verge, because uh, I read the I read our excerpt and I wanted to play Dead or Canceled with you uh, early. Uh, can you play Dead or Canceled real quick with us, Patrick? Absolutely, yes. Okay, Dead or Canceled. Tell me this person is Dead or Canceled. Gertz van von Berlickigen. Is he <laughs> uh, dead or canceled? He's dead. Okay. Um, he's dead. Um, but his legacy lives on. <laughs> his legacy his legacy lives on. And this will actually tie back into our discussion of types of guy. Uh, Gutz von Berlickingen, the thing that I love about him as, as a character is that he is very much a type of guy, right? Like he, he's, um, he's balding. He's a drunk. He hates Polish people. Um, like there's, uh, he, and, and he just loves relatable posting. Yeah. Like Gertz. And, yeah, and he's like, there's a whole thing in there where he like he felt insulted by uh, in his he wrote this memoir, and you can just picture like 80 year old blind Gertz von der Lichtenden with a with a literal iron prosthetic hand dictating this to some put upon nephew. He's like, yeah, yes, Uncle Gertz, yes, Uncle Gertz, yes. Tell me, <laughs> tell me about the time you hit the Polish guy over the head with a with a beer stein, like, <laughs> and and so he's like, so he was a robber knight, like that was what he was called. There's a there's a specific German term for it. Wow, that's like and a D&D character type? Like it, a it is. magic user? It's great. He's a type of mage. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you, and he like, this guy, he got his hand blown off by a cannonball and got it replaced with an iron prosthetic. And he kept up his lifestyle of fighting and, and warring and drinking and fighting the pole and fighting po- like random Polish guys, not even fighting the Polish, just random Polish guys. Uh, and he, uh, um, uh, but he kept doing this into his 60s. Like he was, he was like 62 years old when he goes on, or 64 years old when he goes on his last campaign. And you can see that he's just fattered shit. 
and he's got to be kind of crammed in this suit of armor, like Henry VIII style, like like old like old fat Henry VIII style. It, the armor is still there; it's sitting in his castle, um, which is a museum and apparently a very nice um, a winery, also. Oh, so, wow. so you can you can visit Gritz's uh, Gritz's castle winery and see his and see his fat armor. Um, but you can just see like this is like this is a a type of guy. There there were a lot of guys like this, and that's the thing that I enjoyed about him and I enjoyed writing about him is like you get the, like these little slices of life from this character, but you're like, oh, there were just tons of exactly this guy running around Europe around 1500. And you're like, well, that's kind of fucked up. <laughs> yeah. This is something that I really, not to, to turn the flattery hose on too quickly or too strong, but this is something that I always enjoyed about, about the Tides of History podcast and about reading your stuff about this period in general is that it seems like there is, I think that, like, in terms of making a normal person in the 21st century care about the early part of the 16th and the late part of the 15th centuries is obviously a pretty tall ask. And there's a way, there's a sort of shortcut where you're like, so you see, it's not really that different than it is today or whatever. It's like the way that, like, teachers are kind of like, you know, rap is poetry, too. And you're like, oh, not going to pay attention to what you're saying. In this case, though, I think it's not cheap, that there is, like, something in this that there's always been a sort of a through line in you writing about like basically the earliest history that anybody has a really good idea about, or at least, you know, in Western like history. And yet like there's a lesson there that you then not to like hammer away at too hard. I guess like the question to the extent that I have a question here is like, like what are, are the challenges in writing about something that is this long ago in the 21st century? Like that's a remedial question. And yet like, as someone who studied 20th century history as an undergrad, I never really understood what ancient historians were getting out of this stuff or medievalists. Like, it just seemed like it was so hard to know. So, I mean, I think that's, it's a really good question. And the, the, (laughs) the, what's, what's hard about it is, yeah, like you said, it's a long time ago, but I think the, the thing that I I try to do, and especially now I'm doing stuff on prehistory, which is, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, is that basically I think our timescale for, for thinking about the world that we live in is wrong. I think that we're so inclined to think in terms of months, years, even decades. And that's not the timescale that human existence takes place on. That's maybe the scale that a human life takes place on. But in the grand scheme of things, one lifetime is, is a blip. You know, we, pe- there have been human beings around for 300,000 years, um, even longer, depending on how you want to draw those lines with our with our relatives. And and so like a, a, a decade here or a decade there is a pretty short thing. But that's I mean, that's kind of the big picture answer. The smaller scale answer is that when we try to understand why things happen in the present, like we've got to go back further than the past couple of years or even the past few decades. And, you know, you can see the outlines of these more distant pasts kind of surfacing in the present. And the thing that ties all that together is that we shouldn't take the present world for granted. It's not like stuff has to be this way. It's not like it was destined to come together this way. And it's not like things have always been this way. Um, the, the assumptions that we have about the way the world is supposed to work, like the, the origins of that are knowable. You know, like there's, there were other ways things could have gone. There were, there were contingencies. And, that, and I think that even, even as a thought exercise, it's useful to, to work through that and to work through the implications of like, where did this particular thing come from? How do we understand how this worked? And even if you don't think the answer itself is all that convincing, I think there's value in the effort in the same way that there's like value in the effort of trying to understand the value of a, the value of a baseball player. Like that is as a, as a stimulating intellectual exercise, I think you get something out of that. And I feel like you get the same out of history, but in this particular case with this book, I think, I just think a lot of shit happens around then. And it's like, what's it like to live through a period where things are in flux and the world is changing very quickly. And the assumptions that you have about what your life is supposed to look like end up not being that way. um, Which I think is a, really common experience for people in this like 40 year period. Um, I think, I think that's something we can relate to in the present is this, the sense of dislocation and disruption. So I was trying, that's something I was trying to get at. I mean, in terms of getting people to care though, it's always like people are, I think there's an extent to which people are people um, and people do people things. And if, and a lot of the things that people do are stupid and self-defeating and mean and shitty. And, um, I think that rather than, I don't try to tell like heroic stories about the past because I'm not sure there's any such thing as heroes. I like to tell stories about types of guy 
who are relatable. Um, and that's not a gendered term. Like that it's, could be men, could be women. I like to, uh, but I, I think that like, if you can identify this kind of peculiarities of character and like the telling detail that takes you into this world and it helps you understand like, oh, you know, as much as things might be different, there are also things that, that kind of hold true. Over See, my, my question to you then is, how do you find those details? Because to me, the, the problem is, and I noticed this because uh, I've read Eric Jager's two books too, that the paper trail is very scant from those eras. So how are you able, as what is the grunt work of history you have to do to be able to get a fully formed picture of not only the people, but the circumstances surrounding them? Because when you, you know, the excerpt that you have from the verse, it's on uh, the factory, you know, you start out with a description of like the air and, you know, uh, the earthy aroma of congealed sweat on unwashed bodies and the ordure of horses, you know, things of that nature. How are you able to get at those details when you have to sift through a pile of evidence that's 500 years old, if it exists at all? So to some extent, there's, there's got to be some active creation of creation that goes along with that because the sources aren't going to like the source that I'm working with to tell about that particular incident isn't talking about sweat or unwashed bodies or, or, the smell of the smell of horses because they took that for granted. Yeah. That right? was right. just like That's, the way that we don't talk about like whatever the increasing humidity or something like that. Yeah. Or, or like the, 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 the smell of walking along a New York street in the summer, which yeah. is a distinct scent. But like, if you live in New York, you kind of take that for granted. You're like, Oh, this is what New York smells right. like. You're not like, I'm getting some real pea notes. On the street. <laughs> no, you just, you just get them and keep moving. Exactly. And, and I think, so what I try to do in a, with a scene like that, is to th is to think about the things that people took for granted or that they didn't write down but which must have been there. So like you know if somebody's walking and they're wearing armor their armor's jangling, right? Yes. Now how many they're not going to mention that, but that's part of the the kind of um the flavor of their world, the texture of their world. And so what I try to think about are what are these things that must have existed that people didn't talk about and the way that people take details for granted today like the like our 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 friendly Arizona idiot in the purple shirt Right. Like this is the there's an anthropology and uh, to understanding the past that's like try to figure out those details in the same way that you're trying to figure that you're trying to like understand the present day world and you're you're uh, you're you're taken for granted types of guy that you have to do with the past, too, where you have to think like, OK, we have this person here. How are they approaching? How are they approaching the world around them? What are like kind of the material markers that say who they are? Yeah. What are the, what are the sounds that that surround them? What are the what are the scents, the textures? And so I try to, I try to get at that. And it's mostly just like what is the stuff that had to have been there? What are the what are the things that had to have been there that I feel comfortable putting in? I try not to invent um, whole scenes to the extent that I can. <clears throat> I try not to invent whole scenes. I try not to make people up, but I'm, I'm comfortable adding those kinds of detail when I think that this is stuff that must have been there. This is stuff well, I feel okay with. That. Also, you could draw upon other uh, accounts of people having to oh, wear yeah. armor from different times and what that oh, sensation yeah, 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 yeah. is like. Right? Yeah. So the, in this particular book, what I tried to do um, with the kind of, so in the middle chapters of this book, I tried to focus on people who weren't necessarily famous, um, who weren't especially well-known. And the way that I did that was I tried to find interesting sources to go with. So in Goetz's case, he wrote a memoir. Um, he, he's, he wrote one of the very few memoirs written by a person of his social class at that particular time, not a literate bunch. Um, these, uh, no? these, uh, pro professional killers, um, <laughs> so say, like yeah. the mercenary class or whatever, not even really mercenaries. They were just sort of entrepreneurs of violence. Yeah. They, they, they were not an especially literate bunch. There's like one other one. And that was written by a guy who was real, like gung ho for the King of France. And, um, uh, but that, even that one's interesting. Cause that guy was wounded 27 times in one battle. Um, he was the sole survivor from the front rank of a Pike square, but <clears throat> Anyway, um, how did anyone survive an injury in 1490? Like, okay, so in terms of like practical care for injuries, they were really good at it. It's they, like they could they were great at things like splinting broken bones or, you know, like suturing a, like like suturing a, a, a laceration or, or something like that. Like they were they were perfectly fine at, at, at that kind of stuff. It was that they didn't have disease theory. Right. They didn't have germ theory. So there's so there's no real sense for like, how do we deal with infection or kind of like 
you know, they might have kind of folk cures for like some sort of stomach issue, but it's not like they understand the mechanics of this is why your stomach hurts. Mm -hmm. So uh, you're kind of limited in what you can do in situations like that. But like, you can set broken bones. There's evidence for people setting broken bones going back tens of thousands of years. So that kind of stuff is e- is relatively easy to fix. Yeah, because it was almost more experienced. Like everybody broke mm-hmm. a leg or two, like just over the course mm-hmm. of their lives back yeah. in 1500. So it was like they're just used to it. So they're like, okay, we got to figure out how to do this. Yeah, and and not all. And you can tell when you look at when you look at skeletal evidence from from these periods that like not all of them heal great. Um, but most of them did heal. You know, you can see like that your people's bones tell a story. It's one of my favorite things is, uh, is this technique called osteobiography where you write, uh, you write a biography of a person on the basis of their, their skeleton, um, just without anything else to go on. And so you can tell like, oh yeah, this person broke their hand at some point. This person had, this person had a period of malnutrition because you can tell from lines on their teeth. Um, you can tell like what their, what their diet was on the basis of the, the isotopes and, in, in their tooth enamel. Like, so you can, you can write a whole life story of a person on the basis of this stuff. And you can see like, oh yeah, this guy, this person um, broke this bone, but it was really poorly set. Then they rebroke it and tried to reset it. And that one didn't take. And so this person just walked with a limp for the rest of their life. That sounds like someone who would show up on a witness stand in court a lot. Like, oh yeah. Like, yeah. I, I want the yeah. bone story guy for this murder. <laughs> thing. This has become a very guy oriented podcast. Patrick Wyman, do you want to remember a guy now? I would love to remember a guy. All right, your guy of the week in honor of the U.S. Open is Yvonne Lendl. You remember that guy? <laughs> so I did, I did not remember Yvonne Lendl particularly well until um, you mentioned him here. And now I'm feeling a lot of Yvonne Lendl coming back. I remember, uh, did, he, wait, did he coach? Um, he coached somebody, right? He coached a, a, a next generation tennis star and was somewhat famous for that. Did he coach I do believe so. Wait, this is the part we're at the well, we're at the part where I like look something up. And here's the part where time. I make a pedantic distinction while Drew is looking something up on Google, which is that uh, I think he, that Ivan Lendl was technically a dude, not a guy. We don't need to go into it. Uh, but Andy you know, Murray. Andy coach, Murray. Okay, that's Andy, Andy Murray. That's why I rem- I remember uh, being real high uh, about ten years ago and watching some tennis as one does. And, uh, and and the the announcers having a long discussion about the glorious career of Yvonne Lendl. That's yeah. a good sport to watch while high because it's so intense it, and it keeps it's, going. It's intense, but it's repetitive, which is exactly what you want in a in a sport that you're watching whilst stoned. Yeah. Oddly, oddly soothing. I remember Yvonne Lendl. It's still in my head. Back in the day, Snapple came out with an energy drink. Snap up. They had, yes, that's right. And Lendl was their <laughs> spokesman, and I still remember the ad copy because he goes. People say to me, Ivan, you play like you have ice water in your veins. Not so. It's a snap up. Yep. And I, I remember this. I, as still, well. I remember the whole goddamn line. And it pops into my head. Just the fact that I still remember that it's called snap up is like whatever. I guess like as a fellow ad man, you have to tip yeah. your cap to this being extremely good copy because it's been tormenting both of us for three decades at least. Yeah, Roth and I are are clearly best friends because we remember the same exact stupid shitty ads from the exact same time in history. Yeah, we had this a whole, uh, okay. I don't know, it's like two or three episodes ago that you just sang the whole Juicy Fruit jingle right on the damn podcast. Everybody I did. There's nothing, there's nothing I love more than the Juicy Fruit jingle. With you. Hey, well, and we're going to do more guy stuff in the fun bag, Patrick Wyman. This is from Michael. And Michael writes in, what position in sports has the most guys to remember? I'm torn between bullpen pitchers and backup QBs. Which position in sports do you have more guys you remember patrick so i would say probably i would say i probably remember more backup quarterbacks so i'm uh kyle bowler whose wife i believe was recently in the news for some uh, for some big time anti-vax stuff yeah yes in, uh, in podcast, against Carrie Prejean. she's yes, been on several right. times that is like that is absolutely peak uh remembering a backup quarterback guy territory is when yep. you remember that his wife has done some anti-vax stuff that's like <laughs> so that's i mean pro, I, like i remember the kyle bowler years i jo, john david booty i believe was mentioned in the question i usc yeah, guy we, john david, david booty, booty uh left high school at 17 to not become the starter and wait behind matt leinert for several years um 
that's it's tough for a variety of reasons uh the i mean john david booty we got um you, you know some of some of my personal favorites uh josh mccown uh been around forever yeah um you know we can we can we can go on and on and on yeah, backup, with the backup quarterbacks, quarterbacks. Are- a rich vein with that for me like relief pitchers it's there's so many different types of them there are different types mm-hmm. of backup quarterbacks too that like kyle bowler's the guy where they're like you know he can throw it 110 yards if he wants to and it's like but he's not well you know but it's like <laughs> but he can do it and then but yeah there's different types like no one would ever say that about josh mccown whereas like with relief pitchers there's like you know the difference between a todd coffee type like a guy that just kind of is shaped like the grimace and throws as hard as he can like and plays for a million teams. Like the difference between that guy and even a Mike Fetters, who is also faintly grimacy shaped, but had an entirely different approach. That like there's a lot there to explore. It's just like you have to be willing to commit to knowing who relief pitchers are. Whereas like back like at quarterbacks, to- there's only thirty you know of them, and mm-hmm. they, they kind of tend to like, move between teams. I'd like to give it up to two other positions too. One is just golfer, like Steve Stricker, yeah. mm-hmm. or like Larry Mize, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then also. Uh, like particularly immobile front court players in basketball, like yes. Brendan Haywood. Like, yeah. if you if you were like six foot ten and slow as balls, and you always turn the fucking ball over, and your jumper looked like a like a crane accident, <laughs> then I remember you very very distinctly. I worry that they stop making that type of guy. That we're not seeing as many. That like the next generation of Don Reeds are just not going to play in the NBA. And that's a drag in some ways. But there, okay, so I have, I have several thoughts here. Uh, the first <laughs> is um, one backup quarterback to remember, Bruce Gradkowski. Yes. Yeah. Much. Oh, that's, of course. That's, Very that's, lovable. Yeah, that's a guy. Um, then, uh, okay, so immobile front court players, uh, Benoit Benjamin. Any, mm. any Benoit Benjamin heads here? I mean, yeah. I, I was a, a Nets a fan of a certain net. age. Mm-hmm. I watched him. We had my friends, uh, this is going to sound like a brag, my friend's dad worked at Drake's Cakes, and they had pretty good corporate seats at the Meadowlands, so sometimes we'd get to sit in those, and we sat right behind Benoit Benjamin and uh, his child, that's... his little baby, or his wife's, uh, his wife and, and their child, who we called Baby Noit, and that's... it looked kind of like him, and uh, would just sort of look at us and make goo-goo faces. That, the thing is, with being old, is that Baby Noit is probably like a 33-year-old man now. <laughs> But like it was like we noity, yeah. But I was, but at the same time, like I always have a soft spot for Benoit Benjamin, not because he was a good net, he really wasn't, but because he had an adorable kid and his wife seemed nice. When when he played for the Sonics, <clears throat> my dad somehow knew the athletic trainer for the Sonics in like 1992, and so I got to go into the locker room before a game, and I got to meet Benoit Benjamin and Nate McMillan. Wow. Uh, and so I had I had a, a Sonics hat, one of the real old, like real shitty green ones with the disco uh, skyline on it, and exactly. like the space. Yeah. You know it, you know, it with Benoit Benjamin's signature. And I think he only played for the Sonics for two years. So like of all of the, of all of the like memorable Sonics of that generation, I have Benoit Benjamin's autograph. Yeah. Like <laughs> you met like great. the proto Sonic, like Nate McMillan, like a generation spanning, like franchise icon. And you're like, mm-hmm. I'd actually prefer the tall guy's autograph. If that's yeah. Possible. Nate McMillan was getting his ankles iced too heavily to sign my hat. Right. I was uh, going to say he was like 36 and had played in all 82 games since before you were born. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. He'd, he'd just been her and he's and Nate McMillan still a guy still yeah. a guy <laughs> he's become the, such a good coach though yeah. like the most underrated NBA coach I think he's mm-hmm. like he's getting into that Eric Bieniemy area where he's such a good coach that it overtakes his guyness mm-hmm. yeah and I think of him more as a coach now than a guy yeah I don't want to let the guy part go no though, the, the guy not. part is integral to our understanding of Nate McMillan in the present day would he be a good coach had he not been a a guy yeah. No. Playmaking defensive mm-hmm. first. Yeah, like it's definitely like yeah. you can fit the guy characteristics into the type of coach that he is. Probably mm-hmm. not 100%, but it's like that being correct has never really stopped me from doing stuff like that in the past. Exactly. Uh, Justin writes in, for a very long time, I've been fascinated with the idea of seeing a big pile of all the food I've ever eaten. Not chewed up and digested, but fresh as it was when I ate it. <laughs> I'm a 43-year-old man. I have absolutely no idea if the pile would fill one shipping container or like five of them. I think I would pay up to $5,000 to see that. Now, Patrick, you're a weightlifting man, so I assume that you eat a great many like whey protein powder bars and like raw steaks and shit like that. How much food would your pile, how much space would your pile take up? It would be absolutely fucking immense. 
as uh, as as somebody who has been overeating for for decades now, like in te- sometimes intentionally, <clears throat> sometimes not. Um, there's uh, I have eaten a lot of food. I'm eating about ten pounds of chicken a week right now, and Unreal. it's it's a lot of chicken. This I'm is a a, lot one of, of the real secrets of following Patrick on social media is that like. Yeah, you get the insights, you get the, you know, sort of like historical tidbits. There's some good uh, spoofs and goofs. Also, you see pictures of the tremendous sandwiches that he makes every day. I, I make some really large sandwiches. Super like, large. Like club sandwiches at home. Like, that's a normal thing to do. Yeah, I, I got to look. I love a panini press. I'm, a, I'm sorry. I'm a panini <laughs> press guy. That's uh, um, I have used the same panini press for seven years. It's seasoned. I think nice. <laughs> savvy play. Yeah, this is, yeah, I love that, but I love a sandwich. Um, <clears throat> so I would say I many, 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 many very large shipping containers. Most of them filled with double cheeseburgers. Uh, when I was in Ireland, I when I lived in Ireland for a couple of years, they make uh, garlic cheese fries where they put like garlic Ooh. flavored mayonnaise on top of. Uh, oh, you lost me. Of, the you mayonnaise lost you there. <laughs> yeah, but... it's well garlic garlic flavored mayonnaise though. It's like it's uh, but it's just a mess of shit. Um, and I ate, I ate those like every Friday night, kind of stumbling back to my apartment. So the, the uh, overeating stuff is not strictly like a gains thing for you because you are, no. you are a man of lift. So you're out there getting larger and, and growing ass and doing squats and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But this is not like the, the chicken is a strategic thing. The cheeseburgers are, are pleasure principle. Just, just, just that purely, in. purely for, for the joy of it. Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. No, I, I was, I've, I've always been hovering on the boundary between, um, strong guy who's kind of fat and fat guy who happens to be strong. Like I've always been like that, you, you know, that particular range. I've always been, you know, kind of 10 pounds on one side of the dividing line or 10 pounds on the other side of it. And right now I'm right now I'm feeling a little slim, but I can tell there's some fluffy days coming. Nice. Uh, according to NPR, the average American eats 1,996 pounds of food per year. So that's a ton of food a year. So if you're 44 as I am, that's 44 tons. And I get very, very horny for like any like ghost to Christmas present, like food repast scene in like Mm -hmm. a movie. So I'm trying to think of like, I don't really care how much space it occupies. I just know it'd be a lot of food all sitting there. And it sounds really good to see all of it. I I do agree that there's something satisfying about the image. Like I like the idea of it Mm. being segregated by the type of food to a certain extent, just so I can see how many large format Italian sandwiches that is. Like the idea of like like a in the way that you might see like a like a cross section of a a you know a building or like something like that. That like I want to see how much of it is just long heroes with like little bits of mozzarella and like prosciutto hanging out the side of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's do one more. Mark writes in, I've been reading on the background story of how mealy-mouthed backstabbing climber uh, Mike Richards weaseled his way into the Trebek seat on Jeopardy. The funniest nugget was to me how he learned, how he got a start in TV working for Jay Leno, the original mealy-mouthed backstabbing climber. Are you also outraged as a Jeopardy fan, or is this not worth your ire? This is the same week, by the way, that Mike Richards uh, was ousted as the producer of Jeopardy, they, he stepped in as host, and they still let him run the goddamn thing. And then everyone was like, what are you doing? And he finally got cast out of that. So, uh, Patrick, did you care about Jeopardy? Were you outraged at all about how they mishandled the Mike Richards situation? Yeah. So, I, so um, I, I was lucky enough to appear on Jeopardy. Uh, Whoa, when, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Was, I was on Jeopardy. Um, I did not win. Um, I was beaten by a very lovely guy who I actually liked very much, who hosts, uh, who hosted the Cracked podcast for many years. A guy named Alex Schmidt. Uh, yeah, he, I've, uh, been another, that, I've been I, on I, his uh, secretly incredibly yeah, fascinating podcast yeah. a bunch of times. Alex rules. Really yeah, good. He's guy. Wow. wonderful. Yeah, he beat me on Jeopardy. <laughs> I didn't know that he was a Jeopardy guy. Another yeah. fix that was in. Yes, someone uh, from the media industry getting to win in a fix. He he beat me on a on the final on final Jeopardy on a question about musical theater, which I'm just I saw the. I saw the thing come up and I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm fucked. There's no way. There's what no was way. The clue? Do you remember the clue? And don't um, tell me the answer. I don't. Uh, so it was. So it was like a, 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 a musical about a Scottish bridge. Oh man. That's a, that's, that's a, bitch. Oh, the Scottish play. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The, the answer, yeah. the answer was Brigadoon. Oh, all right. Oh, all right. I've heard that name, but yeah. Man alive, like, you know, I would have said, like, Oklahoma. 
Yeah, there was no way. I didn't even come up with an answer. I couldn't mention. I, yeah, like, that's a very. We've had the only version of that experience I've had is on our little dorky defectorty thing, where it's like, you know, I'm doing my best in answering questions, and then you get to the final Jeopardy, and Luis is hosting it, and it's like a city in Florida. Which one am I thinking of? And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of them. Uh, Coral Coral Gables. Yep, uh, is, the, is the correct answer. Sorry, the answer was Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> but the, <laughs> But did you actually have anything invested in the uh, the Richards saga um, at all? I did mostly because um, so so I have I have really fond memories. When you go on Jeopardy, you have to you sit there like the whole day. Like so, you they tape like uh, they tape like five shows a day. They tape a whole week's worth in in one day. But you're you're there the whole time. You're watching. You're you're sitting in the crowd. So I got like a lot of Alex Trebek in that day, and I actually did it twice because I was an alternate the first time. So I spent two whole days sitting there listening to Alex Trebek banter and talk. Um, and so I have like, he's kind of a weird dude. Uh, yeah, I think that was the consensus was that he was yeah. authentically a weird dude. He was authentically a weird dude. And so I'm, I'm offended by the idea of replacing beloved weird dude with like greasy, shitty sex pests. Ugh, like, yeah, TV mutant, that, like just yeah. a, like a normal behind the scenes Hollywood fucko. <laughs> Yeah, like that's like what you're talking about. One of our very few cultural institutions that actually values learning in any sort of public way, and you're going to put that fucking guy in charge of it. Like that's like say what you will about Alex Trebek being weird, but like he read books, and I don't think Mike Richards has ever read a book. Yeah, no, I, I, I at the beginning I was like, oh, it's kind of a letdown, but whatever. I'm sure I'll be all right. And then all these people were like, well, the fix was in. He. He got to rig his own search, and I was like, well, that's probably overstated. But no, it turned out to be utterly accurate, thanks to Claire McNear at The Ringer. He just totally rigged it for himself. He doesn't, he sucked at the job anyway. So I was, I was like, and then, then now they're going to give it to Blossom and Blossom's got takes too. So I don't know what's yeah, Blossom. I think that that's like the, if Claire is out for another scalp and like absolutely hats off to her for reporting the shit out of that and listening to Mike Richards awful podcast in order to write the decisive blog, it's like 40 hours of him being like, well, I don't know what type of boob is the best, but I like them all. Like just like a total butthead, like telling non jokes for a long time. She needs to get Blossom on the record about, like, the germ theory of medicine. Because I feel oh, like her beliefs percent. on that would shock you. Yeah. Uh, our guest was Patrick Wyman, and you were a fantastic guest. Patrick's book, The Verge, Reformation, Renaissance, and 40 Years That Shook the World, is out everywhere where books are sold now. And you should buy it because yes. it's history. But this is the sort of history that is goddamn propulsive and interesting and yeah. not... It, it ain't dry. It ain't... It ain't the, the medieval shit that I was forced to learn about, like, in eighth grade that I hated. This is the real deal good oh. shit. So thank you for writing it, and thank you for coming on the podcast, yeah, sir. Man, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the kind words. Uh, as they say, first time, long time. Um, oh. <laughs> uh, no, I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure chatting with y'all. Uh, Brandon Nix is our producer and engineer. Daisy Rosario is our executive producer. And our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. You can listen to ad-free episodes of The Distraction only on Stitcher Premium. And thanks to us, you can get a free month of Stitcher Premium right now. Just go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code DISTRACT. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is that you listen. And go subscribe to Defector.com, too, because our one-year anniversary is coming up. We're all going to celebrate all the great Defector memories, like that one post we did one time. I like the other post as well. I thought that one was also good. So yeah, there's a lot to talk about. That's two posts, and there were a lot of guys, and it was so much fun. Patrick, thank you for coming on again. We'll see you guys next week. Bye.